Today on Blue 58, the Packers cornerbacks had an up-and-down journey in 2023, some of which was due to things outside their control. How will a new scheme affect this unit looking ahead to 2024? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am very happy to be with you here for another episode. As promised, I wanted to take another look at Brian Gutekunst's remarks at the NFL Combine this week. A couple things really stuck out stuck out here on a, on a second look. Um, the first is Gutekunst's thoughts and the Packers' thoughts, really, on cognitive testing. This is something that's been in the back of my mind for the past couple of years as kind of a not even really a project, just kind of a question I've had on the back burner, monitoring things as you know people report on this and different information comes out. But really, it's the question of how should you test for cognitive abilities, basically. How do you affect uh, or how do you effectively test for what a guy has going on in terms of processing information? For a long time, the NFL has used the Wonderlick test. Recently, something called the S2 test has come about, and basically they're all trying to do the same thing, figure out how guys process information. And I've been wondering what the best way is to do that, because if you've been following the news this offseason at all, the, the S2 test has been getting roundly criticized for leaking some of its results and maybe not delivering on some of its promises and things like that. The Wonderlick has been criticized for a long time for a reason that a lot of different standardized tests are. Really, it it just tends to test how good you are at taking tests, and that's going to, um, not to use a loaded word here, but privilege some people who have a background educationally that prepared them to take standardized tests in a way that some other guys don't. And there is loads and loads of research on on how exactly that process works. And if you've interacted with higher education at all and how they, they weight um, standardized testing into uh, who gets into college and who doesn't, that's an entirely weird and very difficult can of worms to open here. But basically, the point I want you to take away from that is that, that basically that's what the Wonderlick is. It, it's not really a gauge of intelligence, quote unquote, or even processing information or um, how smart somebody is or, or, or what they're able to do. It's just how well you can take tests more or less. It, there is some variation within that. Uh, there was a, a, um, a player a couple of years ago that the Packers had, Marwin Evans, um, who who actually got faulty information on how to take the test and it dragged his test scores way down. He didn't know the test was timed. They didn't tell him uh, when he was taking it. So he took like half the test, got up and uh, got a drink of water, went outside, you know, used the bathroom, came back, and then he had, he had to rush to finish the rest of the test. It really affected his test scores. Uh, but there are so many things that can affect what goes into a score like this. So all those problems aside, I've always wondered, what is the right way to go about this then? How do you test for something that seems intuitively important? How smart a guy is, and I'm using smart as shorthand here, but how a guy processes information, uh, how he's able to learn things, how he's able to retain what he learns, you know, things like learning styles, maybe a fall out of favor a little bit, but uh, how well a guy is able to learn things, those things all matter. So how do you go about quantifying that? And how what effect does it have on, on how you um, might decide to, to draft a guy or not? And 
Brian Gutekunst was asked about this at the Combine this week, and he said basically it's not a tool for deciding how the Packers are going to pick guys at all. You know, really our, the way our cognitive testing works, it's not, it's not really used as much as an evaluation tool whether we're going to choose a player or not. It's more about if we do choose a player, what are the best ways we're going to support that player once we get him in the building? You know, so if we do have, happen to have guys that don't um, take our cognitive tests um, or the league's cognitive test, which because there's, there's multiple, um, we'll probably test them when they get in, if we, once we bring them into Green Bay, just because it's really more about how do we support that player, uh, what are their strengths and weaknesses, how, how, how do they learn best. Um, it's more about that than really a, a tool to decide whether or not you're going to choose a player. So a couple important takeaways, and if this was obvious to you, uh, kudos to you because this was an, a way of thinking about it that I really hadn't considered before, but they decide that they don't want to look at this really as a, a means of ranking players at all. It's entirely a post-draft thing for the Packers, how you're going to interact with a guy after you've gotten him in the building, what resources you're giving him, how you're equipping him to learn and do his job once he's already with the Packers. You don't really care about whether or not you're going to select him based on on those scores, but it's more about what you think he can, or what you what you think he's going to need after you've got him on your team. The kind of subtext in there is that the Packers have their own cognitive test, uh, in addition or apart from the Wonderlick or anything else that that teams are are using at the NFL level. They have their own test that they want to put guys through, which I think is pretty interesting. And I wish someone would have followed up on that. Speaking of getting guys in the building. Uh, somebody asked a really insightful question, or I thought a, a really insightful question, about how you go about finding a culture fit uh, for you know with a draft pick. How do you know if he's going to fit in with your team? And Gutekunst, I thought, gave a revealing answer on that as well. He says it's tougher now than ever really before. You know, when you first start scouting a player, they've been there three or four years. They were recruited by that staff, possibly, and so. They've seen them when they came in at 17, 18 years old. They've seen them grow. They've seen their maturity levels go. So you have a very better sense. Now guys are hopping around a little bit more, so it's, it's made the job a little bit more difficult. Um, but I think, you know, all the work that's already been done, and now we get a chance now to sit down and talk to them, talk to them about some of their past experiences, see how they answer those, see if they take accountability, um, you know, and just how they handle themselves in, a, in an interview process. And then there'll be obviously a ton more work going forward. But um uh, the one thing I do know is you can feel really, really good about guys, but until you put them in your environment and see how they fit within that culture and all the challenges it presents, you never really know for sure. The last part there I think is really important because I think Gutekunst in this press conference was very honest about a lot of the things that you can't know when you're scouting guys. You could do your best, you can do your due diligence, but a lot of the times you're just not going to know until you get guys in the building Um what they're going to be like in your culture, in your system, just taking care of business as kind of an adult out there having a job for the first time in a way that they probably haven't before. You just can't know that. And it's harder now to to know those things because players move around a lot more than they used to. Finally, uh, this was the last, I think, most interesting bit here. Uh, When asked again about getting players for Jeff Halfley's scheme, 
Gutekunst really downplayed any difference from what they've done previously. The foundation of how what we're looking for in players and stuff isn't going to change. You know, we, that, that process is pretty entrenched. I think one of the things that the conversation will continue um, is just kind of some of the things he's going to want to do. And, you know, certainly um, in the final decisions of player acquisition, there, that, that might factor in a little bit just in how he wants to play. Um, but I, want, I know he, for a fact we've always done this, but he's looking for versatile guys that can do a lot of things. Uh, I think you've got to be careful when you build a team of having too many guys that don't have kind of like a, um, you know, a robust skill set because when injuries hit, they got to be able to do different things. On top of Brian Gutekunst's focus on athleticism, I think that versatility aspect has been an underrated thing in his tenure as the Packers general manager. He really wants guys with secondary and tertiary skill sets on top of the thing that they're basically known for, the thing that gets them drafted. And you can see that with a bunch of the guys that the, the Packers have picked over the last few years. Lucas Van Ness could rush from the outside or the inside, though we didn't really see him inside at all um, in, in 2023. Uh, Luke Musgrave could line up as an inline tight end or out wide or in the slot. Uh, Tucker Craft could do a little bit of the same. Jaden Reed could do that. Dontavian Wicks can do that. Uh, the defensive line prospects they picked last spring were thought of as both outside and inside rushers. You could go back further and further in these these different draft classes and pick out a lot of guys that have skill sets that align with what Gutekunst is, is saying there. And I think that's an important thing to take away from what, what they're doing as they look to add bodies for Halfley's scheme here is they want guys who can do a bunch of different things, not necessarily guys that are going to be a scheme fit for the 3-4 or 4-3. Though that may be a bit of a deciding factor at the end, it's not going to be a a leading characteristic that they look for. So that's really it from Brian Gutekunst. Hopefully we get to hear from the rest of the Packers brass uh, more this offseason because I think it's an interesting time of transition in Green Bay. Also of note, news-wise, right after I released the last episode of the podcast, we got some news that Preston Smith has had a couple million dollars trimmed from his salary for 2024 the the exact figures that they're changing around for, for Smith aren't super important, but I think the overall trend here is that the Packers seem to be preparing for spending in free agency, just doing what they can to clear cap space just to, to make things happen if they decide that they want to spend in free agency, and that does seem like something that they want to do. Beside that point, it is clear now that Preston Smith is going to be back for the Packers in 2024. I think J.J. and Igbari's injury is a factor in this decision because without him and moving on from Preston Smith, you're down to really just two edge rushers on the roster heading into 2024, which is a problem. You need more. And even if Smith is your third edge rusher behind Rashawn Gary and Lucas Van Ness this fall, it still is nice to have him around. Preston Smith is the ultimate known commodity on the Packers' defense. He just is Preston Smith each and every week for, for better and for worse. I I think if you can keep that around for another year and, and feel like you can get another productive year out of him, that's good. Next year, the economics become a little bit more favorable toward cutting him because you're looking to save nearly $8 million against the cap if he's cut. But that is a problem for next spring. We're a long way away from that. According to Tom Silverstein, some sack incentives were added into Preston's contract. If he reaches 10 million or 10 sacks, 10 million sacks, that would be a lot. Uh, if he reaches 10 sacks, he'll get $4 million, which sounds nice, but he's had double-digit sacks in a season just once in his career. He's never really been a big volume pass rusher, but he did do it once, and he did do it once with the Packers. Always has been pretty close, but not quite. Tom Silverstein's reporting, which you can read as being information from Preston Smith's agent, kind of made a big deal about 
Preston Smith dropping into coverage less, playing in a 4-3 scheme versus a 3-4. That may be true, but we're really talking about 50 snaps over the course of the entire 2023 season, so 19 games counting playoffs. Nine of those 50 snaps came against the 49ers. So if you take all of those coverage snaps out, you're talking about like two and a half coverage snaps per game that he might be rushing the passer on. Maybe he can scrape another one and a half to two sacks out of that. Who knows? But it's not a lot more opportunities. Regardless, it seems good to have him back. And I'm really glad to see that the Packers are taking the approach of working to keep some of their veterans around. You know, Aaron Jones, Preston Smith, these guys are still valuable players. And I think it is tempting at where the Packers have been in their life cycle, kind of post Aaron Rodgers, to just fully clear the caps. They were going super, 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 super young. And we're just going to get everything straight cap-wise. But keeping some veteran or veterans around matters. You you heard from player after player after player last year how great it was to have Aaron Jones around. Even if Preston Smith is limited as a player at this stage in his career, I think he still has a useful skill set. And it's an internal messaging question too. You got to say to guys at some point, we're going to spend some money on someone. Uh, and Preston Smith has been a model citizen since he arrived in Green Bay. Never a malcontent. Always, you know, with the exception of, of the 2020 season, really, really productive. Um, a, a model citizen, returning that that phrase again, just the kind of guy that you want to keep around. And the Packers made a point of keeping him around this offseason. So uh, kudos to the Packers for that. And I think it, it's going to do good things for them this fall, in addition to answering a roster question that would have been a pretty big question had Smith not stayed around. So glad that they got that cleared up. All right. Cornerbacks. Looking at this position as a whole, I guess a caveat up front, it's really hard to evaluate cornerbacks, I think, in a meaningful way. Even if you're going to sit down and grind all the film, do all the tape evaluation, it's really hard to have a substantive opinion on corners because of how much of what they do depends on on the scheme and the play caller and the situation and who they're playing against and stuff like that. Just as an example, um, how would you evaluate Richard Sherman's week one performance against the Green Bay Packers in 2014? He really didn't do anything in that game. And uh, that was because the Packers made a conscious decision to only go left. Lining up against the Seahawks defense, Richard Sherman lined up on the Packers' right. And the corner, the, the, Seattle's did, the Seattle Seahawks did not travel their corners at all. So he just stayed on the left side and dropped back into their cover three like he did. And the Packers just went left all game and attacked as much as they could on the left side of the field away from Richard Sherman. That is arguably not doing all that much, but also it's playing in your scheme. It's doing what you're supposed to do. And it's the other team being so scared of what you do do that they just decided, you know, we're going to sacrifice rookie Devontae Adams to Richard Sherman and just let him get eaten alive that game. But we'll try to put Jordy Nelson on the left side and see if we can find some other things to do over there. There's a lot of that that goes on, and we've had this kind of push-pull discussion regarding the Packers' defensive backs over the past couple of years with the seeming misalignment between what Joe Barry says he wants to do, what he actually does, and what the Packers' defensive backs seem to be well-suited to do. So that right away makes it hard to evaluate cornerbacks. But on the other hand, I think we can look at some basic things like roles and participation and Crucially, how often you're getting your hands on the ball when you're out on the field. I think that's a really small thing to focus on sometimes, and sometimes I wonder how practical it is to to put as much emphasis on on our ball hawking stat 
as we do, but getting your hands on the ball, even if you're giving up other plays, is a great equalizer. And you saw the impact that a guy like Rasul Douglas could have in the secondary, even if he was giving up completions, he could still make an impact by erasing plays too, just by having better ball skills than any other defensive back on the Packers roster. So I think that is an important thing to keep in the evaluation here. And we'll try to do our best to give some perspective on the Packers cornerbacks in addition to that. We had four cameo players among the Packers cornerbacks uh, this year. Robert Rochelle, who played no snaps on defense, but 112 on special teams. David Long, no snaps on defense, 14 on special teams. Keandre Thomas, none on defense, 11 on special teams. And Caillou Blue Kelly, one snap on defense, four on special teams. If some of those guys end up being part of the picture in 2024, it wouldn't be a surprise. But I think their evidence, walking, talking evidence here that the Packers can can churn guys and get them involved on things like special teams if and when they have to without a lot of concern about you know how big a role they're going to play on the overall team. You can just find another one um, if you need someone to play a David Long-type role or Keandre Thomas-type role to slot in on special teams for a couple games. You can find a guy like that. Outside of those players, I think as a whole, it is fair to say that this group's performance wasn't great. But with a couple of exceptions, and we will talk about those, I think that's mostly because guys were playing bigger or different roles than were expected. So you talk about the guys who played a lot of snaps in the Packers secondary. Uh, Keyshawn Nixon leads the way among cornerbacks. Uh, Carrington Valentine uh, is next. Corey Ballantyne as well. Rasul Douglas, uh, Jair Alexander, and Eric Stokes. The guys that are at the top end of that depth chart, even Keyshawn Nixon, I think are playing bigger roles than the Packers really would have preferred in 2023. So even if they weren't great, it's hard to be too down on them just because of what they were really expected to do going into the season. Now, do you have to be ready when you're out there? Sure, I guess to an extent, but I don't think it was ever the plan to have Carrington Valentine lining up for nearly 700 meaningful snaps in 2023. And that just ends up being a problem for your defense if you have to bank on a guy like that, a seventh-round rookie, so much in his rookie season. It's bound to be a problem, and I think it reflected in the Packers' secondary as a whole. Going player by player, we start with Eric Stokes. 110 snaps on defense, four on special teams. The box score stats, not impressive. Six tackles, just that's about what you'd expect from a guy who played in literally three games all season long. Uh, No ball hawks, no plays in the ball at all. Went 8 of 10, giving up completions in coverage for 112 yards, an NFL passer rating of 152.9. Look, we don't need to spend a ton of time on Eric Stokes because he had an absolute failure of a year. Was it his fault? No, not completely. But as a a player that you can count on and build around, around, it's hard to characterize his season as anything but a complete failure. Injuries the last two seasons have made him more of a liability than an asset, and he's really shown no signs of putting those issues behind him to this point. And not for nothing, but the two sna- two games where he did play, uh, the entirety of his 2023 snaps uh, against the Buccaneers and the Panthers were two of the Packers' worst defensive games of the year. The loss to the Bucks and the win over the Panthers, the Packers got shredded. They gave up nearly 70 points in those two games combined, and Stokes was on the field for virtually the entire thing in both of those games, 8 of 10 in coverage for those <laughs> for those two games. 
that is not a, a great performance for two games when the Packers really needed them down the stretch there. So just to conclude, did he meet expectations for 2023? Absolutely not. Even if you did not expect him back until well into the midway point of the season, he still ended up hurt way too often. And when he was on the field, he wasn't good. It's hard to characterize his season as anything other than a failure in that respect. Looking ahead to 2024, I think his outlook is fairly grim. In terms of what you're looking for for his NFL career, I think we are firmly into the hope phase of his NFL career. Like, you hope he develops into something, but at this point, the evidence points to him probably not being much of a player for the Packers. We really don't have a lot of reason to think that things are going to get a lot better. Next up, oddly enough, is Jair Alexander. Among guys who are core players in the Packers quarterbacks group, he played the second fewest snaps, 446 snaps on defense. In fact, 13 on special teams. The second fewest games he's ever played in his career with seven in the regular season, also played two more in the playoffs. Uh, Box score-wise, 27 tackles, five passes defensed, no interceptions, though he did have one in the postseason. Six ball hawks on the year. Went 28 of 39 in coverage, 363 yards, two touchdowns, and one interception, allowing a passer rating of 107.1 when he was targeted. Predicted basically some of these stats. Four or fewer interceptions was our prediction. That was correct. He's never been a huge interception guy. Predicted he would have fewer than Rasul Douglas. That also turned out to be correct, even though Rasul Douglas was shipped out of town. They ended up playing the same number of games in Green Bay in the regular season, oddly enough. And I also predicted that Jair Alexander would have a defensive touchdown. I'm going to keep banging that drum until he finally does it. It unfortunately just did not happen this year. Looking at the entirety of his season, it's hard not to say that this was a poor season from Jair Alexander. Since he signed his big contract extension, he frequently has not really played up to that deal, I feel. Uh, He's injured far too often and dinged up when he's not too injured to stay, you know, to be out of the game. Two of the last three seasons have essentially been lost due to injury, and I know one of those does not affect his his contract extension. It, It happened prior to his contract extension. But still, it's becoming a worrying trend. Then you've got just a little bit of the Jair Alexander, Jair Alexanderness in there as well, uh, naming himself a captain prior to the Panthers game, uh, without the knowledge of the the coaching staff. The subsequent suspension after that, again, they got into the playoffs, but they lost Jair Alexander at a very key point of the season. They really needed him there down the stretch, and for at least one game, he was not there partly because he decided that what he needed to do was make sure that he was a captain when he returned to his hometown area of of uh, of the Carolinas, uh, uh, Charlotte, and uh, the coaching staff did not agree there, and it caused a, a behind-the-scenes thing. At the time, we said maybe this is the first step down the path toward Jair Alexander becoming more trouble than he's worth. You know, I still kind of do believe that, even if no no move is imminent, But for every player, that's a little bit of however you want to describe Jair Alexander. Um, A little bit in that vein, there is going to come a point where the juice does not, (laughs) it's not worth the squeeze. Uh, It does not become worth it to put up with with guys that are going to do those sorts of things um, after a certain point. And I think this incident may have been the first step toward that. We're probably a ways away from anything else happening, uh, but you know it's at least worth keeping in the back of your mind that at some point they may have to make that call, as is the case with a lot of guys that are, are like Jair Alexander. 
So looking at just 2023, did he meet expectations? No, but he's got one of the more interesting outlooks for 2024, in my opinion, because you've got big questions about what a new coordinator can do for him. What does a new scheme do for him in terms of his responsibilities? Does it allow him to play more within his skill set than than Joe Barry's does? I think we've got good evidence in the past of a new coach elevating Jair Alexander's play. Uh, Jerry Gray's arrival in Green Bay coincided with some of his best play. I think it's worth wondering with some of how some of uh, Halfley's former players have talked about him. Uh, it's worth considering that the same could happen again for Jair Alexander. Looking at some other long-term trends, look, maybe this is the Star Trek rule, but if we're looking at even-numbered ones being pretty good, uh, 2020, Jair Alexander is a second-team All-Pro and makes the Pro Bowl. In 2021, he's injured. In 2022, he's a second-team All-Pro and makes the Pro Bowl. In 2023, he's largely injured. That would mean in 2024... We're looking at another All-Pro season and a Pro Bowl from Jair Alexander. Look, the math is all there. Run it yourself. It, we'll see if that checks out. Next up is Rasul Douglas. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Rasul because he was not with the Packers you know, for the entirety of the season, but he did end up playing 487 snaps on defense, another 75 on special teams. In his time in Green Bay, 32 tackles, a pick, and six passes defensed. I do want to talk about his ball hawks there. That pick and those six passes defense does give him seventh for, seven for the year. If you can manage that complex math, I probably can, so I, I hope that you can as well. Uh, just as a comparison, that is half a ball hawk more than Quay Walker and half less than Keyshawn Nixon. At least in this limited stat, he had as much impact in that respect as those two did in a full season in just seven games. Finished his time in Green Bay, 23 of 34 for 274 yards in coverage, gave up three touchdowns, did have the interception, a passer rating of allowed of 109.2. The question on Douglas is whether or not it was a good idea to trade him. Even seeing how the Packers season ended up, I still lean toward yes, there's a good chance he was going to be a cap casualty anyway. We don't get to have the conversation with Douglas like we did with Preston Smith, though, uh, so that is worth considering as you as you think about whether or not he would have been back in 2024. Maybe he takes a pay cut. Uh, maybe he he does some things to stick around. And I think he could have been a useful player in 2024. Maybe you, you make him a safety, and that is you know what he's able to use to extend his career. Though I'm not sure how he aligns with what Halfley wants to do in that respect. Uh, still, it seems like he, he certainly could have been a useful player for the Packers in 2024. But when the Packers had to make that move. Things were looking pretty bleak. They do get a third-round pick for him, though they do have to, to also throw in the fifth-round pick there. Um, the compensation there is is maybe um, less exciting than it could be considering that that overall picture. But in what looked like a lost season for a guy that you may not have retained in 2024 anyway, that seems like an, an okay return. And it's worth remembering that the Packers did not seek to trade him. If you believe Brian Gutekunst, and we don't really have any reason not to, the Bills came to him. Like, he wasn't looking to shop people. He said at the time that he was looking to add talent at the deadline, if anything. Again, you can believe him or not believe him. I don't think we have any reason not to. But this was just too good an offer to pass up, especially considering where the cap situation was for for Douglas. I mean, we didn't know how much the cap was going to go up. Uh, back when Douglas was traded, you can't forget that part either. And just 
at some point you're going to have to think about who's in your long-term plans versus your short-term plans. You wish you could keep everybody around, but if you get an opportunity to get something instead of nothing for a guy who's really probably not in your long-term plans, sometimes you just got to pull the trigger on that. Next up is Corey Ballantyne, who played 488 snaps on defense, another 114 on special teams, 43 tackles, seven passes defensed, and an interception. His first career interception and first passes defensed since all the way back in 2019. Finished the year with eight ball hawks, eighth on the team, was 32 of 54 in coverage, allowing 392 yards, one touchdown, and of course the one interception, a passer rating allowed of 80.2. He is probably the biggest, well, maybe not the biggest considering who is next on the list, but one of the biggest guys in terms of expectations changing over the course of the season. Going into this year, we had him uh, lined up basically as a, a special teams only sort of guy, predicted he would again be- break 100 snaps in special teams participation. He did, but he ended up having a pretty significant role on the Packers defense on the outside as well. And it seems like he was a little bit of a boomer bust player in that role as well. However, I think it's worth pointing out that he wasn't a complete liability in that role, despite it being bigger than the Packers probably expected and hoped for from him in 2024. So did he meet expectations? I guess. On the one hand, he was not like a plus starter. But on the other hand, nobody really wanted him to be. You do have to perform again when you're out there, but he wasn't intended to be out there this much, which is probably going to be the case for the rest of the guys that the Packers, uh, that that the the rest of the guys that we have on this list that lined up at corner for the Packers in 2023, 2024 maybe he's back in the outlook or in the in the in the mix for another comparable role for where he was in 2023. It's probably going to depend on what Eric Stokes is up to to start the 2024 season. We will see. Uh, just I guess wait and see on Corey Valentine or Valentine looking into next season. Carrington Valentine is second to last among our cornerback crop. 695 snaps on defense, another 100 on special teams. Finished the year 44 tackles with nine passes defense. Those those nine passes defense were good enough for fifth on the team on our Ballhawks list and the highest anyone ranked without getting a single additional stat in another category. So he had no fa- no passes defensed, uh, or no interceptions, excuse me, no fumbles forced, and no sacks just all getting the ball when it's in the air and not coming down with it for for Carrington Valentine. Um, Them's the breaks, I guess. Uh, He was fairly solid in coverage, 40 of 72 in terms of targets, uh, 470 yards allowed, one touchdown, uh, an NFL passer rating allowed of 80.2, not too shabby there. And I think this season was a wild success considering he was picked 232 in last spring's draft. 259 picks in the draft, by the way. Uh, Two picks for the Packers came after him, as a matter of fact. Anthony Johnson and Grant DuBose were both selected by the Packers after they took Carrington Valentine. Of course, he was not perfect, to be sure. He was a liability sometimes against the run, as many young defensive backs are. He was inconsistent, as many young defensive backs are. But he gave as well as he got. He was always feisty when he was out there. And as with many guys in the secondary, we've got to use the same descriptor, he he just emptied the clip every Sunday. He gave you everything he had. He left it all out there, and there's really very little more that you can ask for, I think, from that respect. Looking ahead to 2024, even regardless of what happens with Eric Stokes, I think Valentine is going to be in the mix for a starting role. He showed enough in 2023 that you're going to want another look at what he can do 
uh, with a year of seasoning under his belt. And even if it was bumpy at some times, 700 snaps worth of seasoning is experience that you can't buy. Uh, and now he's heading into year two with all the athletic ability in the world and uh, a great chance at a starting role. I mean, it's got to be wide open across from Jair Alexander. He might as well throw his hat in the ring there. Finally, Keyshawn Nixon. 809 snaps on defense, that was third on the team. 199 snaps on special teams, that was sixth on the team. And one snap on offense, which for the record was 30th on the team. His total snap count of 1,009 snaps, adding up uh, defense, special teams, and offense, was the fourth highest on the team and the highest of any non-offensive lineman or quarterback. So your starting quarterback and your offensive lineman always end up taking a whole bunch of your snaps in any any given year. That's not a surprise to anybody. Uh, but other than those guys on the 2023 Packers, nobody played more snaps than Keyshawn Nixon. In fact, he finished exactly one snap ahead of Jonathan Owens in terms of total playtime, and it's all thanks to that single snap that Keyshawn Nixon logged on offense. In terms of the counting snap, stats, 80 tackles, six passes defense, one interception for Keyshawn Nixon, and half a sack, I believe, as well. Uh, advanced numbers, more advanced numbers, uh, 79 of 94, 717 yards when he was targeted, uh, two touchdowns allowed, one interception. I do not have his passer rating. I did not write it down when I was prepping this. Unfortunately, if it is uh, worth that much to you, it is available from Pro Football Focus. That's where I've sourced most of these stats, but it was, I think, a middling year in terms of just raw productivity allowed uh, from Keyshawn Nixon. We predicted way back last summer that he would play more than 350 slot snaps this past year. Counting playoffs, it was close to 800, more than doubled the snaps we thought he would play on the Packers' defense. My prediction was more in line with what he did for the Packers in 2022 than what he ended up playing in 2023. And I think as you look at the overall impression of his season, you've got to keep that in mind because there's a bunch of different competing things to think about when you're looking at Keyshawn Nixon. First, you have to ask how he was used. I can't speak on that with authority with what the Packers wanted to do under Joe Barry, both because of the kind of muddled nature of his defensive um, strategy and uh, just kind of an, an ignorance to what other teams around the league were doing with the position. But he did end up being targeted a lot, um, was an effort guy in the run, which didn't always equate to, to good results, but always a lot of effort. But how he was used, we have to be open to the possibility that may not have been a great fit for his skills. You can also ask, was he at least at good at what he did? I think you can make a case for it. Like uh, he, He's probably the peak example on the Packers of leaving it all out there each and every game. He gives you everything he's got for better and for worse, sometimes for worse as a kickoff returner, but he's he's given you all he's got. He can be exploited at times, to be sure, but um, he, he gives it at all his all whenever he's out there, and that has to be counted into his evaluation here. The last and I think most important question, though, is, is this role too big for him? I think the answer is yes here. I think Nixon is a supporting cash player and not a showcase or foundational player. It would be nice if he was giving you like spot snaps as as your slot corner. I don't think he should be your drive-in, drive-out, first-choice option in the slot there. And that's probably a result of just not being able to address everything in a single offseason as you work to um, retool the Packers' defense and, and just add more talent there. You can't add talent everywhere. 
this is something where the Packers need to look at at probably devoting some significant resources here in 2024. Because I think if, if it came down to it, would you like to just stick with Keyshawn Nixon or try to upgrade? I think the answer there is you, you want to try to upgrade. If they don't end up being able to upgrade, I think they're fine going into 2024 with him as their starting slot. But I think they are going to explore their options there, and they should, uh, whether that's drafting a, a safety who can do kind of the hybrid role there, safety and, and slot stuff, more, or going with a guy who's more of a slot specialist. Whatever the case, I think you're you're looking to take a little bit off of Keyshawn Nixon's plate in 2024, if he's even with the team, because don't forget, he's a free agent. Um, if the Packers want to run that back, uh, it's probably going to cost him in the in the neighborhood of 4 or $5 million like it does this, this last time around. Um, but I think they, they probably pay that uh, for his value on special teams and for the ability that he has shown playing a more limited role in the slot in the past. So kind of a complicated evaluation there, um, but I think worth having on your team um, more often than not, just maybe not in as big a role as we saw him in 2024. Again, currently a free agent, feel like he probably did meet expectations overall in 2023, but you know, maybe you look to upgrade if he is your best option in in the slot. Maybe you're looking to add a little bit of talent there and um, get a little bit more return on your investment. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.